Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. Being a good lawyer has nothing to do with knowing the Supreme Court decision in Mapp versus Ohio, or in a relationship business, relationship with our own clients, relationship with the defense side, relationship with the court. That's the most important part of our job. Please rise, court is now in session. This is the uh, Great Trials Podcast. And uh, as always, this is Steve Lowry, and I am joined by my co-host, Yvonne No-Fly Godfrey. Uh, Yvonne, how are you doing today? <laughs> Good. I, the no-fly took me a second. Yeah, uh, you, you were telling us off air that you had a little issue with TSA when you were flying uh, to San Diego. So what, uh, you want to tell our listeners what happened? On my, well, I went to San Diego for um, the, the annual convention for AAJ, and I am, have now returned from San Diego, but my driver's license is still enjoying its time somewhere in San Diego. <laughs> I don't know where. And so I had to go through. I'm sure there's a story about where your driver's license is. Yeah. Yeah. It's very responsible. It was not my fault. Um, but right. so I had to go through TSA without a driver's license, which I wasn't even sure if you could do that. Like at one point I was like, do I just live in, in San Diego now? Like, <laughs> but you can go through. I had enough other stuff to prove who I was that I could go through security, but it involved very thorough searching yeah. of I, my I was person thinking, and belongings. <laughs> yeah. I, I was thinking like pulling you into a side room, lots of questioning. It was. You totally get pulled to the side. They like walk through, they, they search through all your stuff more carefully and the full pat down. And I, I was just grateful um, that they were, you know, they were super professional and they let me on my flight. So... I well, um, we are we're glad to have you back from San Diego. <laughs> yeah, although, uh, although our guest is much closer to San Diego, and uh, and and Yvonne, I gotta I gotta say, you know, normally we, um, uh, I you know, I feel like we're uh, pretty straightforward with our listeners, and uh, I think our name this time of the Great Trials Podcast is a little bit of a misnomer in this case because in this case, what we're actually talking about is a great arbitration, um, but it's uh, one hell of an arbitration. Yes, yes, I can't. I am so excited to talk about this case that I just let's just get let's get to it. Steve. Yeah, yeah. It's, we, let's stop stringing it out. So we are <laughs> we have as our guest uh, the legendary uh, Tom Girardi uh, from Los Angeles, California, and uh, and Tom, let me just brag on you a little bit uh, and talk about your list of accomplishments. I think my I think my favorite thing that I saw in here about Tom is that. He's he's won a ton of awards, a ton of huge cases, over thirty trials of a million dollars or more. Uh, some trials as high as seventy seven hundred and eighty five million. But my favorite thing is Tom has an article written about him uh, by in Modern Counsel magazine. What this titled "The Man Who Makes Companies Quiver." I mean, <laughs> could you get a better <laughs> article about you it's than the man who makes companies quiver? <laughs> Right, right, exactly. Well, Tom, I mean, just to let make sure everybody knows who you are, which I, I think most of our listeners probably do or should know, uh, Tom is a, a fantastic trial lawyer from Los Angeles. He's a partner at Girardi Keese. Uh, you can look up Tom at girardikeese.com. That's G I R A R D I 
K-E-E-S-E.com. And Tom is a, uh, let's see, let's, let's go through. Tom, you, Tom, you've been inducted into the Trial Lawyers Hall of Fame by the California Bar. You've been inducted to, into the American Trial Lawyers Hall of Fame in 2014. You've been named as uh, Best Lawyer um, multiple times. You've been named as Man of the Year, uh, Lawyer of the Decade, uh, Top Attorney of the Year, um, and, um, and you were the President of the American Board of Trial Advocates, the President of the International Academy of Trial Lawyers, a member of the Inner Circle, uh, and uh, just we are uh, we're so glad to have you on here and, and welcome uh, Tom Girardi to the podcast. Hey, um, how nice, how nice. Um, it's really great to be here. And these uh, little things you do can be really helpful to our audience out there who are in this very difficult profession. It, there are easier ways to make a living. I, I will say that. <clears throat> I think so. I think so. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know what, though? I don't know if there's anything that's more fun. That's right. It, when it, that, when that jury uh, buzzes three times, meaning they have a verdict, I don't care if it's over $1,500 or $15 billion, it's pretty exciting. You're about to get your report card. That's right. That's right. Come in, and then the judge says, did you reach a verdict? You want to say, hey, judge, they buzzed three times for kind of <laughs> That's right. <laughs> then the bailiff will get the verdict, and the word meander comes into view here. He finally gets it, gives it to the clerk. The clerk gives it to the judge. The judge looks like he's reading War and Peace. There's only two sentences. Yeah. He hands it to the clerk and says, the clerk may read the verdict. And then she says, or he says, Los Angeles Superior Case Number... We've been here for three weeks. We know the case number. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> we find in favor of Holy Toledo. And then you go back to the office and you say, I won the case. Or you go back to the office and say, I lost the case. Yeah. And you're telling the truth because the better lawyer wins the case. Well, and, and I mean, you know, it, if you try cases every once in a while, you're going to lose. And, and uh, you know, I don't think anybody takes uh, losses harder than a trial lawyer. Um, but um, but yeah, you know, when you and when you get that verdict back and it comes back in your favor, I mean, yeah, I don't know about you, Tom, but a lot of times for me, it's just a sigh of relief. Like, you know, everybody did what they were supposed to do. Oh, no question about it. It's really uh, how great, though. I've. Uh, I'm a little older than some of your listeners. <laughs> uh, I've done this, I think, for 52 years. And I get just as excited and happy about coming to work and getting to the courthouse now as I did when I tried Keck versus Higgs. That was my first case. <laughs> and my mom came to the trial. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Yeah, I, and I will say I did read another quote uh, by you, Tom. That I just gotta, I, I gotta read is it's, you were asked one time about how long you plan to practice law, and I think your response was you were going to practice as long as you didn't have a catheter. <laughs> yeah, I think that's, yeah, that catheter thing walking around the courthouse is kind of <laughs> right. difficult. So right, I think you right. got to draw the line someplace. That's right. That's right. <laughs> 
Well, uh, Tom, let's talk about this case that we're talking about. It is, um, I, I did say it was an arbitration, but it's one hell of an arbitration. Uh, the name of the case was Anderson versus Pacific Gas and Electric. Our listeners will know this much better uh, as the case that was featured in the movie, Aaron Brockovich. And Tom, I got to say, you're our first guest where the case that you uh, worked on and tried uh, was featured in a movie. With, this is a, a first for the podcast, so we are uh, we are so uh, happy to have you on here. Oh, really? Thanks. Um, obviously, it was challenging, and we got a we obviously got a nice result, but the case had a much bigger impact than just the case. You know, the case was basically about people being exposed to contaminants. And there really wasn't much in the way of environmental liability when that case got started. And indeed, it was really a first in many respects to find a company liable for spreading around stuff that could cause injury. So it it had a big impact. Uh, It really did. And then, obviously, the best part about the case, I got to know Julia Roberts because she played Aaron Brock at the city group. Right. And to this day, I, I still see Julia now, now and again. So that was really terrific. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Um, well, let me give a little background of the case for anybody who hasn't seen the movie or doesn't know about the case that involved uh, PG&E in the town of uh, Hinkley, California. Uh, but basically, this involved um, a toxic exposure, a toxic tort of hexavalent chromium or chromium-6, which is highly toxic, highly carcinogenic. It got into the groundwater supply of the town of Hinkley, and this case involved uh, 650 uh, give or take uh, uh, plaintiffs um, suing PG&E. And the result of it was a $333 million settlement after several of the cases were tried in arbitration. Uh, and as I understand it, Tom, and you can correct me if I mess it up, but uh, basically PG&E back, starting back in 1952 um, <clears throat> had a compressor station that would uh, near Hinkley that would pump natural gas out to all uh, places and the machines that were used to pump the pumps um, would get uh, hot, and so they would use water to cool the machines. And in order to keep the um, machines from rusting, they put chromium uh, into the water that acted as a rust protectant. <clears throat> and when they were when they were done with this, then the water would get discharged into uh, a unlined pond or pool. Um, and sit there. And then over time, um, that uh, water um, and the chromium uh, would seep into the groundwater and, um, and essentially contaminated the groundwater for the town of Hinkley and caused a number of different issues. Uh, and, and so this starts in 1952. They did this from 1952 to 1966. And then I think I saw in, in some of the paperwork that in 1966, they changed to phosphate to protect machines. And then that actually, when that was discharged in with the chromium, that actually made it easier for the chromium to get into the groundwater. Um, but basically, in the 1980s, uh, they tested a, a well, saw that the uh, levels of, uh, of chromium-6 were 
uh, I think 10 times higher than the allowed limit. So PG&E started buying up properties, claim they started uh, treating the area to, um, for the chromium, and then basically covered up the danger that was there to the, the inhabitants. And, it, and at some point, some of the evidence that, that you all had in this case was, I mean, tremendous, but, it, but one of the pieces of evidence that I read was that uh, once they realized they had to tell the town members, the, the, the Hinkley um, uh, uh, residents, that they um, you know, had chromium, that they basically said, well, it's, it's, a, it's the same type of, you know, uh, thing you might find in vitamins and it's actually healthy for you and it's not going to hurt you. It's totally safe to drink and things like that. Um, so just completely covering it up. And, and then this is a, chromium is a well-known carcinogen, causes a number of different issues um, and a number of different uh, health issues to uh, the residents and um, among cancer, nosebleeds, headaches, um, gastrointestinal issues, lung issues, uh, you name it, and, and, um, and it could cause those problems. And so that is essentially uh, the, the, the case that uh, got filed and then taken to, uh, taken to arbitration. Is that essentially right, Tom? You know, it, it is. You did a very nice job on that. I think you just explained a little bit more about the case than I knew when I was trying it. <laughs> uh, the fact of the matter is that to, they didn't want the pipes to rust, so by adding chromium to the water to cool down the gases inside the pipes, uh, the pipes wouldn't rust. Then they would simply dump it on the ground, basically, and all the people on Hinkley were on uh, water from the ground. It came in that way. The interesting thing about the case is that there were a lot of articles about breathing chromium can cause real problems. Uh, welders, for example, the chromium that would come off when they were welding, they would breathe. And there were articles of breathing chromium would cause cancer, cause other serious things. But there really weren't any articles on drinking chromium. And lo and behold, we thought we had a real battle here because, you know, obviously if you don't have the medical background and so forth, the it's not going to work. But indeed, we had an expert in New York, Dr. Max Costa, and he said, hey, Tom, uh, I guarantee you uh, drinking chromium causes cancer. I said, well, how do you know? So anyway, he said, I'll tell you in a few weeks. Oh, no. So he went out and got a thousand rats and he fed half of them regular water, half of them the water from Hinkley. And lo and behold, on the ones that were drinking the water from Hinkley, 90% of them developed tumors. And that was kind of the foundation of drinking chromium can cause bad things just like breathing it like the welders were doing. This episode of the Great Trials podcast is brought to you by Legal Technology Services or LTS. Yvonne, have you ever been in the courtroom and right when you're about to make the big point to the judge or to the jury, play a video, bring up a document, and your technology has frozen or not worked? No joke, Steve. That has never happened to me because I use LTS. Yes, and LTS, Legal Technology Services, are experts at legal courtroom technology, whether you're talking about demonstrative exhibits, playing videos, doing day-in-the-life videos, 
or doing settlement videos or just presenting your evidence to the jury, these are the experts. They can also help you out as far as scheduling depositions nationwide. They can take care of it, arrange for the court reporter, the videographer, arrange the location. They get what a trial involves, they get what a deposition involves, and you can use them to make your life a lot easier. They have also been voted four times as either the best of trial services or best hot seat technician by the Daily Report. So you should definitely call them up. And when you do, mention the Great Trials podcast. And that's Legal Technology Services. You can talk to Bob, Melanie, or anyone else on their team. They are fantastic people and fantastic at their jobs. Legal Technology Services at ltsatlanta.com. That's ltsatlanta.com. You know, one thing I always wondered about, because, you know, the, the big problem with uh, toxic tort cases like this is, is that they can be a, what I would call a causation nightmare. Um, because, you know, the defendant is going to say, uh, well, technically chromium could cause this, but also a hundred other things could also cause it, um, you know, and, and you're not going to be able to say that it was caused by this and the levels are so low, et cetera, et cetera. And, and even, you know, it's not like toxic tort cases have gotten any easier since, um, since uh, you know, the early 90s when this case um, was uh, was tried. Uh, they, they are, you know, still... When, when you look at a, at a potential toxic tort case, I mean, they are um, a lot of work, a lot of uh, money, a lot of time, and um, in very difficult cases. And, and obviously, you all did a tremendous job in this case. Right. And then, and, you know, first of all, having an arbitration, we had a, a three-member board arbitration with uh, three judges. And indeed... That was the thing I think that was even more powerful that here you had these very experienced men who were so honored uh, in the judiciary by being the mediators or the arbitrators in this case had a great deal to do with the overall success of the litigation because this wasn't a jury that went just went crazy. This was really these three brilliant uh, judges coming up with some decision. Right. And I guess, you know, um, from a, from a trial lawyer st standpoint, Tom, and I, you know, was interested in this discussion. I mean, normally, uh, you know, I just resolved a case where we fought for six years about whether or not the case was going to go to arbitration. We successfully kept it out of arbitration. And normally I like to stay out of arbitration. Uh, and you know, and I, and I certainly don't like forced arbitration. This one was, uh, um, a voluntary arbitration, but talk about the uh, decision, you know, um, to go to arbitration in, in this case. You know, my heart is just where yours is. We do everything we can to stay out of arbitration. There's no question about it. Give me that jury trial and let me try the case. And the bad part of arbitration, you have the individual arbitrator who obviously has his own views of life and so forth. And the fact of the matter is, I think you get a lot better shake with 12 jurors than you do with one arbitrator. On the other hand, here, the arbitrators that were selected were so terrific in terms of their experience and in terms of the way they treat people, because we have these people from Hinkley that really needed a little hug now and then uh, to get through all this. And, so therefore, that's why we got so lucky of getting the 
the three arbitrators to try this case. Did it allow? Um, did it allow the proceedings to move faster for there to be kind of you know quicker proceedings, fewer procedural delays, reach a faster decision, that sort of thing? You know, in a way, yes. Um, but here, there was so much discovery and so forth that was going on that we needed just as badly as they did. It didn't move the thing along that quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, generally speaking, of course, that's the nice thing about arbitration. And we definitely try to use arbitration in smaller cases and so forth. Uh, but uh, this thing here went on for quite some time. Right. Well, and and related to to the discovery process. I mean, gosh, I have I have so many questions. I feel like we could do an episode that's just about discovery in a case like this. But can you just take us even even from a broad picture? Um, one of the things we read was a, was the trial brief that your office sent over that was talking about the initial documents you had and um, pages being missing from those um, from those documents. Studies you saw referenced, but the studies themselves weren't produced. Can you just give us um, a flavor of what the discovery process was like in a case like this? You know, the thing that has amazed me in so many of these cases against corporations, um, they, kept, they put their thumb on the scale uh, in, and don't really present the things as honestly and as truthfully as they should. And I could go over, you know, 20 different cases we have here where corporations had absolute knowledge of a very bad situation and didn't do anything about it. That the talc stuff that causes ovarian cancer, lo and behold, we came across a document from a very well-known scientist 20 years ago that was telling Johnson & Johnson that this stuff causes ovarian cancer. And it is interesting to me that as a young lawyer, none of my cases really had a moral aspect to them. Uh, the nice lady would slip and fall in the ice cream at Savon. Well, they didn't want her to slip and fall, but there's no moral aspect there. Right. And the guy's not paying attention. He runs in the back of the other guy. Well, there's no moral aspect. Now, in so many of these cases, you find out that the defendants know of a terrible thing that could happen, and they don't give a darn. And indeed, all they care about is the bottom line. So, you know, lawyers get a lot of criticism, you know, greedy trial lawyers, etc. The truth of the matter is that we're really the only protection people have when companies are inappropriate and cause harm to them. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 sad that, uh, you know, the only way companies in many cases will do the right thing is if they are held accountable in a court and, uh, and hit where it hurts, and that's in the pocketbook. Um, <clears throat> you know, and we wish they would uh, take action uh, without that, but uh, but that's that's you know the world we live in, and so uh, that's why you know I'm proud of what I do, and I know Tom, you are, and I know Yvonne is uh, for what she does, um, and it kind of reminds me when you're talking about this is, is some of this of what we saw in some of the tobacco litigation, which we had on this uh, podcast um, 
with both Russ Herman and uh, and Laura Champ and just some of the documents that were discovered there where that not only were they trying to uh, reach, you know, children, but then covering up what they had done and, um, and had whole teams on trying to cover up, you know, how they, you know, how dangerous cigarettes were. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, if any of the three of us were running a company and all of a sudden there was evidence that we were hurting somebody, holy Toledo, man, we, what do we do? How do we stop this, et cetera? But that doesn't appear to be really the way they do it now. And that's a little disappointing. But the one thing that is there is the jury trial uh, to let the jurors then tell the company what they should be doing that they knew all along. And I don't want to be, you know, an anti-company. Let me tell you this. There are a whole bunch of companies out there that do a terrific job, are very concerned about making sure their products are safe, et cetera. I will tell you about a letter I got last week. This could be one of the nicest letters I've ever received. The letter, it's on a plain envelope, Tom Girardi printed, no return address. I open the thing up and he says, um, Tom, I know you. I'm not telling you who I am. I'm not telling you what drug company this is but I think you'd find this to be somewhat interesting. And apparently it's the chairman of a drug company. We don't know what product, but it says, okay, 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 we'll change it. Or that jerk Girardi in California will be all over us. <laughs> uh, wow, that was so great. I, I had to tell somebody uh, that was yeah. such a nice thing to get. That's a, uh, that's a frameable letter right there. Without a doubt, right. Well, and, and actually, um, Hopefully, ideally, when I mean, we don't know where it came from, but ideally preventing some of this harm that too often, unfortunately, you know, you, we are in the game and you are in the game after the harm has already happened. <clears throat> maybe so. Yeah, maybe so. Well, uh, let's go back to the PG&E case. I mean, so, you know, one of the things, like we said, in, in a case like this is, is the discovery part of it and, um, and you know, uncovering these documents. Uh, it sounded like from the, the trial brief that was sent over uh, that you, uh, even though there were documents missing, you were also able to, uh, you know, uncover a number of documents that basically had a lot of admissions in there, um, you know, had admissions that they knew that they, you know, had contaminate, contaminated the water supply, that they knew it was carcinogenic, uh, and, and, you know, it just uncovered some really good information. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I just don't want it to be lost on our listeners. I mean, about how, you know, much time and effort it takes to go through documents like that and, and uncover them. And, you know, and of course, as is featured in the, in the movie about going out to the water board, uh, and, and uncovering documents there. I mean, it just takes a, a, a ton of work. You know, it does. Um, and, I would like to take credit for all the times that I uncovered documents. But to be honest with you, every day, it seems, in the mail on major cases, no return address, people send us documents. We had this case against uh, a drug company, the drug coagulated blood, and it was a pain reliever. and 
if you coagulate blood in the over 50 set who are overweight, have high cholesterol, you're going to get heart attacks and stroke. I ended up settling the case for a great deal of money. However, it wasn't due to my great brilliance as a lawyer. <laughs> One day in the mail, I get a memo from the chief medical officer of this company to the executive president that says, are we going to get people aspirin with the drug? If we don't, we'll have so many heart attacks, it'll fill the drug. Oh, and, you know, things like that have happened to us. And then, you know, I'm on the radio with you thinking what a great job I did. The truth <laughs> of the matter is it was really somebody else that just didn't want to, couldn't live with it. Yeah. And of all the letters that we've gotten that have been so helpful to us, there's never been anybody who calls and said, hey, what did you think of the letter I sent? Never. And I bet we've had 30 or 40 of those that have been very massively helpful in resolving big cases. And there's publicity given to the settlement, et cetera, and never a peep out of somebody that said, hey, uh, did you like my nothing? Interesting, huh? Yeah. So um, well, let's talk a little bit about the trials. Uh, I mean, so in, in the PG&E case, uh, my understanding is you tried a number of those cases uh, up front, maybe uh, 15 or so of them before the case is resolved. Is that right? Yes. You know, in all of these cases like this, generally speaking, the court wants to take a, a group of people and if there are various types of medical issues involved, the court likes to get a couple from each. Like if you have a, a breathing problem, if you have a cancer problem, if you, whatever that might be, the judge likes to bring a small group with different types of medical problems so that everyone can get an idea of what a jury would do with these various cases. And so that's very, that's very constant. Right? We probably have eight or nine cases right now in the complex court, and that's exactly what the court is doing to try to get one jury trial to give everybody a little bit of a guideline as to what sort of case is this worth, what is this worth, et cetera. And so when you uh, go to arbitration at case, are you trying these uh, 15 or so cases at, at one time with the, the same crosses of corporate reps and same experts, or are they, are they tried as 15 separate cases? You know, um, sometimes they're 15 separate cases, but most of the time the court doesn't want to spend that much time on the litigation. So if you have two or 300 plaintiffs, the court has to expedite that. So therefore, it would like to try a group of them at once with various types of medical issues and then get kind of an idea of what the jury would do with respect to these cases in the, in the future. And so, and then as far as the, it being in the arbitration process, how did that work? I mean, obviously you don't have to do jury selection. Are, do you go through the opening statement or do you start just presenting evidence and, um, and you know, and then, um, you know, how, how did you go about presenting your cases? Well, really the, there isn't much difference in an arbitration 
especially when you would have like three arbitrators and a jury trial. So you have to dot all the T's and cross all the I's, uh, you know, on that case. And therefore, you do everything exactly the same. You would, for example, you know, do, a, do an opening statement. Uh, you would have visual exhibits. You don't want just some expert up there saying this, that, the other thing. You want to visualize it. Because even though they're non-juries, it's a judge trial, nonetheless, the court has to be just as convinced as a jury would be. So you try these cases identically like you would try a jury trial. Okay. Have you noticed, Tom, is there anything that, that you think you feel like you change about um, your style or, or your approach, knowing that um, the case is going to be decided by three judges instead of a jury, or, or is, is your style and kind of, um, you know, the, what makes what you do as a trial lawyer, does that sort of, sort of stay the same? You know, that's a great question because 50 years ago when I started doing this, I was a young lawyer with, uh, on a part-time basis with one of the leading trial lawyers in the state of California. His name was Elmer Lowe. And I went to trial with him. And he'd be looking at the jury and he would say, ladies and gentlemen, the jury. <laughs> now, and because the juries were different, number one, companies wouldn't pay for time off. So obviously anybody who had a job would be excused. And then if a mom was taking care of the children at home, she'd be excused. So the next thing you know, you ended up with a bunch of 78-year-old guys <laughs> that you could talk that way to. Ladies and gentlemen, but um, things are much different now in terms of the jury selection process. Matter of fact, on that jury, a good lawyer knows there are at least half of them that are every bit as smart as he is or that she is. And better make sure that you're, you're going to convince those people because they're going to look at this case very, very carefully. Right. And, and that's, that's very important. The jury selection process now, I think, is probably the most important part of the trial because the cases that go to trial are those cases that if it were a fight, it'd be a six to five pick em fight. When the drunk truck driver runs over the kid on the sidewalk, that doesn't go to trial. Right. Uh, that's settled for plenty of money. The no liability case is either thrown out on summary judgment or some nuisance settlement. The cases that go to trial are those cases that are evenly matched. The lawyers on the other side are probably better than you are. And now you got to win that case. So that it's a whole, it's a whole different ball game now because that jury, you got to convince. And as I said just a few minutes ago, the some of those jurors are every bit as smart, not smarter than you are. So you got to appeal to their intellect. Right, right. So I guess, you know, from that standpoint, thinking about kind of the, the level of sophistication and intelligence that jurors have, then maybe, you know, your style presenting the case to the three arbitrators wouldn't really wouldn't be that different. That's true. It really wouldn't. You know, I, I suppose you would 
you'd spare a little bit of time with the arbitrators um, than with a regular jury, because that jury would need a little bit more education on the various issues that the judges would pick up, the arbitrators would pick up real quickly. Right. So it's, it is somewhat different, but on the overall scheme of things, it really isn't very much different. Gotcha. Um, so, you know, as far as, you know, how you put the case together for the arbitration against PG&E, um, did you do anything like, uh, like focus group type uh, things like that or, you know, come up with themes to your case like we would, you know, for a, for a jury trial? You know, that's such a great question. Uh, the answer is no, because nobody thought of focus groups <laughs> a long time ago. Now it's crucial. I love these mock juries that we have, and we'll get two or three of them on a, you know, a major case, and to get their feedback really educates somebody, because they are talking now like jurors are talking, not like a bunch of lawyers are talking. Right. And that sort of feedback really becomes important. The things they think are important, the things they don't think are important, etc. So the the mock juries, you learn so much, I think, and that has become something that I think all good trial lawyers use because you always pick up a point or two, and sometimes you pick up a lot of points. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's amazing how many times you, uh, you know, do a focus group and the thing that, you know, either you've been worried about in your case, uh, they're not worried about, uh, or something you weren't worried about, and all of a sudden they picked up on it and said, you know, what about this? And you're like, hey, I really hadn't been that concerned about it. But yeah, you can learn so much in a, in a focus group. Okay, so the same things happened to you, it's happened to us. Right? <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let me ask you about in the, in the PG&E case, you know, one of the things that I was wondering about is, you, so the, the exposure happened, uh, you know, many years before a lot of these people learned about it. And I, was, I guess I was wondering, was there any sort of a statute of limitations issue raised or how was that addressed? You know, there, there were some, <clears throat> excuse me, um, on the other hand, the concealment of the company was very helpful to overcome the statute issues. So even though the people got sick a long time before, there was no way that people could connect it with drinking the groundwater at Hinkley because it had been totally covered up uh, by PG&E. So that being the case, it became a non-issue. This wasn't like an auto accident where you break your ankle and your the statute starts to run that day. Here, the concealment puts you in a whole different category. And <clears throat> that same thing is true with a lot of these drug cases, the talc cases, for example, and a lot of the cases that are going to trial, there's concealment or at least not active release of information and that being the case you normally can overcome a statute of limitations problem well and, and the level of of concealment i think you know i had i had seen the movie i had read up on the case a little bit but i really until some of the documents that um your office had sent us i really didn't know about some of the things that the the residents of hinkley were being told how they were 
as Steve mentioned early in the episode, that they were kind of told that um, chromium is found in a healthy diet and can be in a, sort of an es in essential mineral. And then eventually they were told not to drink their well water, but they could still use it for things like showering, even though at that point in time, PG&E had information that the both the risk of, of ingestion and inhalation by using the water to take a shower or whatever, that that still caused dangerous exposure. I mean, there's that level of, I mean, I think that's what makes this case so scary is that it, how well it was concealed and that people were actively being told things that weren't true. You know, no question about it, but that did not end with this case. That happens today mm -hmm. by many companies and many serious injury cases. And however, generally the one thing the companies don't appreciate is they're going to have a couple of people in that company that'll say, hey, we can't live this way. We got to come forward. And I've been in a couple of depositions where taking a vice president or something, and he would say something, he says, no, wait a minute, I can't say that. The truth of the matter is we knew about it, and we didn't do anything about it. And the other side, of course, goes nuts. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but nonetheless, when you have so many people knowing about the facts and there's a real problem, it becomes much easier for some of those people who want to come forward. Right. Sometimes they come forward by sending you a document. Sometimes they come forward at a deposition that starts off one way and then all of a sudden they change their tune. So there are a lot of good people out there. Oh, absolutely. So um, at trial, at, at the arbitration, did you call your uh, your clients to the stand, and and how how did you go about presenting their testimony? If if you did, we did, but you know, in most personal injury cases, the person standing there at the courthouse or sitting at uh, on the witness stand is not the best person to talk about injuries. You don't want a person up there saying, and then this happened to me, and then this happened to me, et cetera, et cetera. You want other people to say that. You would like medical doctors to talk about the severe pain the person has gone through due to the three surgeries that the person had to go through, et cetera. Because generally speaking, just the plaintiff up there saying how terrible it is isn't near as persuasive as a third party saying, holy Toledo, this person really went through a lot. So you don't want to turn off a jury or a, a arbitrator by having the person up there saying how terrible right. life is. Uh, you want somebody else to be saying how terrible it is. And so in this case, you know, I know you, you talked about the, um, the, um, the experiments that were done on the rats, was that your main causation testimony or did you have uh, medical doctors come in or how, how did you go about proving causation for each one of your, your plaintiffs in that case? Well, once you had the testimony of what was happening to the rats, 
to show this really was a chemical that caused severe tumors. Then it became very easy for the physicians who were taking care of the people to follow suit. You know, most of those people, they were, they were interested in trying to cure cancer. They weren't really interested in finding out what caused the cancer. That isn't in their right. bailiwick. On the other hand, when you have this good testimony uh, by scientists given then to your treating doctors, it was a whole new ballgame. Yvonne, what does every successful law firm need? Really great lawyers like me. Re that is exactly right. Really great <laughs> lawyers like Yvonne. Uh, they also need cases, right? Right. And uh, what's the way we get cases? I think I know where you're going with this, and I'm going to say our website. <laughs> our website is a big one, and the best website firm out there is Digital Law Marketing. Yvonne, tell our listeners what Digital Law Marketing does. Well, they can help you with things like search engine optimization, pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, content marketing strategies, web design and development, reputation management, which sounds very mysterious. I, I definitely need some reputation management. I, <laughs> I, I'd like to find out exactly what that does. We need to look into that one a bit more. Uh, and they also do local search, and I'm sure if you call Mike and Stephanie over at Digital All Marketing, they will tell you what local search means, and they'll tell you what all of these things do, and how it can help build your law firm and get you cases. Call Mike and Stephanie or look them up at their website, digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. I guess I'm just wondering about how, you know, when you've got a case like this, and I know you've handled a lot of uh, large uh plaintiff cases or, or mass tort cases, when you go about having 650 cases that you've got to prepare for essential trials, really? I mean, how do you, how do you go about organizing that and keeping everything, uh, so that it doesn't, uh, outweigh, you know, everything, you know, what you're doing? Well, really a good question. And the fact of the matter is whenever you represent more than two or three people, you better be pretty well organized in terms of, one, keeping those people up to speed of what's going on. Secondly, to make sure that you try those cases, that they don't get impeached on anything to which would hurt the whole case. So that the preparation of those people for depositions, et cetera, is massively important. And I think lawyers sometimes lose their way here, which is a good point. The fact of the matter is that lawyers think, okay, I got this testimony that chromium causes cancer and let's go try the case. On the other hand, without the good preparation that it causes this type of cancer, without the preparation of giving the information to the treating doctors to show the medical causation, they can really be cross-examined and not look so good. So all this trial work, most of it doesn't take place inside a courtroom. Mm -hmm. Most of the trial work takes place late at night when you're really going over the stuff. Yeah, I mean, that's so true. We, we talk about that uh, a lot, about how your, your preparation before getting in the courtroom, you know, can make or break your case. And, uh, and, you know, can make it so that actually trying the case is, I don't want to say simple, it's never simple, but it, it, it's, it goes a lot easier and more efficiently than, 
than if you hadn't uh, prepared it. I, I guess I should say that. You know, I think in these cases, one of the most important aspects is the client and how the client comes off. We even video our clients here at a prep, at a prep session. And then we show them the video. Look at you. Look at, look at the way you look. Look at you're you're not really being truthful, it looks like. You're not being to the point. You're talking too much. And that sort of kind of hard preparation, I think, really, really helps. I've often said that you give me a good client, I'll win the case. Right. I don't care how it happened. You give me a bad client, I'll lose the case. I don't care how it happened. So it's really the lawyer's job to do that preparation so that client comes off in the very best possible way. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, we've talked about this as that as was, you know, if you, if you've got a honest, likable client who, you know, is really wants to just uh, get on with their life, would rather not, you know, be in this at all. Um, you know, most of the time, it, you know, when it comes down to who's telling the truth and who or who should prevail, jury's going to, um, is, is going to give your client the benefit of the doubt. And the same, I guess the same is true if you've got a really good defendant. No question. Uh, all of a sudden, you're naming this uh, defendant, and if he or she comes off as likable and sweet and nice and honest, that's a, that's a real bad situation for a plaintiff, without a doubt. Right. Well, so I think that... Go ahead, Tom. I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just saying that that sort of preparation is all in the lawyer's pocket. It's up to the lawyer to do all that stuff. And indeed, you see many lawyers that don't do that and their cases get ruined because of that lack of preparation. Right, well, and, and, and I, what I was gonna say was I, I, I like the idea of, of videoing and playing it back for um, the client because I think that you know, people learn all different kinds of ways. And I've, you know, I've definitely been in that situation where I've prepared, I've spent a lot of time, um, what I thought was effectively preparing a client for a deposition. And then I've been in that deposition where, um, you know, the next day or whatever, where I've been like, it's like, I never said the things that I (laughs) said, or it's like, (laughs) it's like, we never had that preparation meeting, but I could see how, um, taking that extra step of doing the mock deposition, having that video and then playing that video back for the client could be really effective. And then erase it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. I, sometimes I wonder how, how would you ever get pushbacks from, from your clients on the fact that they're being videoed and they just are uncomfortable doing that. I mean, I guess if they're going to take the stand at trial, they got to be comfortable getting up in front and talking. You know, I think that most clients, if they're properly talked to, go along with you. You know, the the one thing I've learned over many years of practice is being a good lawyer has nothing to do with knowing the Supreme Court decision in Mapp versus Ohio or in a relationship business, relationship with our own clients, relationship with the defense side, relationship with the court. That's the most important part of our job. And indeed, as a young lawyer, I didn't think it was that important to tell the client everything that was going on all the time. 
it was really irrelevant to the client, etc. But as I've uh, gotten older, there is nothing better than keeping the clients in the loop so they have a good idea. You don't want a situation where you try to handle the case for three and a half years and then two weeks before trial say, you know, I think we're toast. I don't <laughs> think we can uh, win this. You want to be able to bring issues up to that client as time goes on. And even though it's a little bit of a nuisance and it takes time, uh, there's a huge reward because that client has been kept in the loop. Believe me, when you say at the end, I think we ought to take the money, the client says, you got it. Or, hey, we should try this case. The client says, let's do it. But if you don't keep them in the loop, you become not quite as persuasive on the major decisions that have to be made. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, and, and yeah, I think we all know this, you know, you spend so much time with your client and, um, and, you know, work so hard for them and, and hopefully get them a great result. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, I've kept in touch with many of my clients and just, uh, you know, become friends with them and, and, um, you know, they're like family. No question. And quite honestly, it's a great business getter because if you've been nice to that client and all of a sudden a bad thing happens to a friend of theirs, they're going to say, Hey, you guys, you got to call Tom. You know what I mean? So mm -hmm. it's the way I think you can develop your practice as well of one, doing a good job with the client. And then secondly, those are the people who are going to look for you if something bad happens in the future. Um, well, yeah, I was just uh, looking over some of the notes from the uh, the PG and E, and I, I was just wondering when you when you cross examined uh, you know some of their corporate reps. I mean, how did they how did they go about defending what they had done in this case? As far as you know, telling people that it's actually healthy for them uh, when it's clearly not. Well, like you know, all these cases. Uh, the fact of the matter is that generally you have a lot of corporate executives that are going to testify in that fashion. We had no idea. It doesn't really cause it, et cetera. So here the way in which you call those witnesses is very important. Let's suppose you have somebody that wants to tell the truth. Maybe you put him on first and then he says, yes, you know, we saw that this could really hurt people. Then, if they put on somebody after that who's trying to claim there's no problem, the jurors just start looking at the at the ceiling. So, how the when you call various witnesses is massively important. Yeah. Yeah. Order of proof is uh, is. Um you know, such an important thing at, uh, at, at trial and spending time on that and knowing how it, uh, how it rolls out. And, and it's one thing that I always wonder about when you hear the defense side, uh, talk about how strong they think their case is. And then you sit there and think, you know, are they really thinking about how the evidence is going to come in in this case? Because, you know, we get to go first and we get to control how it, it, it gets rolled out. And so, and many times when I've, you know, been, talking with my friends on the defense side and, uh, and they, you know, tell me that they've got this really good point. I'm, I'm just sitting there thinking to myself, but well, that's just not how it's going to play at, at trial. 
Yeah, for sure. Um, but generally speaking, the defense people I'm up against, these are big cases, and man, they know what they're doing, baby. <laughs> yeah. And they know they know the order of proof better than right. we do, uh, because they have much more access. And so, the fact of the matter is, you don't get too many breaks uh, at, at time of trial because. The, the way they set things up is going to be in such a fashion that would be very favorable to them. Um, so, Tom, I wanted to ask you, I, I thought I saw on your, uh, on your website, was there a second PG&E case? It, and what was the, did that involve Hinckley as well? Uh, yes, it did. And now, of course, there's a third and fourth regarding the wildfires. Um, PG&E is the gift that keeps on giving to the plaintiff's bar right. because they keep, <laughs> they keep uh, making such horrific mistakes. Right. Was, was the, so, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just going to say that not all of the types of problems were covered in the first trial. So then there was a second trial uh, to, to talk about the causation aspects of those, of those individuals. And, and was, but by this time, uh, they PG&E realized that they were in some pretty hard, hot water here. And indeed, the cases went much more quickly as we tried number two and three. Right. So in the, so the second round of cases, I guess the, the um, so the first set of cases was set, settled for $333 million, And then I saw that the second group was or um, was settled for $300 million. Uh, but that had to do with hexavalent chromium as well? Yes, it did. Okay. Um, and it was just, a, it was just a, a larger group of plaintiffs, a, a different set of plaintiffs? A different set of plaintiffs that weren't okay. involved in the litigation at the beginning. And at that point, you had already had your evidence established, and I'm, I'm sure PG&E had an idea on how everything was going to go. Yes. That's that's definitely correct. You would think Pete and me would have known how it was going to go thirty years before, but right. that's another story. Um, and Tom, I read that that Hinkley, the town, just never really recovered. That it's kind of a, a ghost town now. Is that is that true? You know, yes and no. Apparently, because I heard all that as well, but apparently things are getting better for Hinkley. And the, the the rates are up with respect to the houses, et cetera. And obviously, oh, it's cured the, the chromium problem. Yeah, good, good. And so chromium, was chromium able to be remediated from the, the, the drinking water? They got another source of the drinking water. Okay. Because you can't really remediate it. it you can take some of it out, but you can never get rid of it all. But what they did is they went to a different source of water for the homes, and uh, it made a huge difference. Well, Tom, is, is, I wanted to ask you, um, it, what advice would you have for anyone that's thinking about taking on a um, toxic tort type case uh, like the PG&E case? And, and this is coming from someone who has looked at a couple of cases uh, like this. Would, what, uh, what advice do you have for our, our listeners on that? You know, it's uh, very hard to do in terms of the time and the money 
that is required. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> um, it is very hard to do in terms of the time and the money that is required, uh, especially if you're a, a smaller, younger firm. The fact that you're going to have to litigate something for four years and the fact you're going to have to put in a fortune of costs for experts and all that sort of stuff is really, really hard. Right. On the other hand, a lot of young firms uh, like to hook up with those firms who know what they're doing and kind of learn how to do it. So the next time, believe me, they won't need anybody. <laughs> they'll have it all. They'll have it all down. Right. Right. But it's a gosh darn it! What a fun job, huh? <laughs> you know, you're trying to do a little bit of good in the world, and and then, quite honestly, you can you can earn a pretty good living too, and so that that's a nice way to do things. But more importantly than the money in these cases that a law firm would get is the fact that you really made a difference. You changed things a little bit because the stuff that goes on in products cases, for example, all of a sudden there are memos put out saying, we better change this because, you know, this could really be a legal issue for us. Things like that come up. And that is all the plaintiff's bar that is really doing that. So I think we're making America a little better place to live. I mean, that's certainly why we do what we do. And it, and I, I agree with you. I mean, there's no uh, better feeling in the world uh, than when you, you know, have changed your client's life, when you've, when you have, uh, you know, given them hope again, when you, you have, um, you know, just demonstrably changed their, their outcome or, you know, that and, uh, you know, and, and, you know, made a company take notice and, and do things differently and do things a little safer. I mean, there's really, there's really no better feeling than that. You know, I don't think that I would want to be quite as dedicated if I was representing AIG insurance company. <laughs> right. As opposed to representing, you know, people. I got a note last week. Dear Mr. Girardi, I can't begin to tell you how great it is that you had helped us so much at a time when we needed the help. Last night, my husband and I went upstairs knelt by the bed and said a prayer for you. And then there's a signature. And I couldn't, I couldn't figure out who it was. So I asked Shirlene, my assistant for 30 years, I said, Shirlene, who is this? She says, oh, Tom, yeah, that's uh, Mrs. Vasquez. I said, really? Was that a big case? I don't recall. Oh, Tom, she got $17,000. Oh, wow. So here's this wonderful, heartfelt letter that, you know, somebody was so nice to send. And certainly it wasn't a big amount, but it was an important amount for them. Mm -hmm. So on the plaintiff side, you get things like that, that you would never get from AIG. <laughs> right, <Yeah>, exactly. <laughs> Well, um, this has been uh, just a fantastic conversation. And, um, it, it, and Tom, I just wanted to ask you, is there anything else you'd like to tell our listeners about the PG&E uh, litigation uh, uh, that we've been talking about? You know, not really, except litigation like this really helps. Not just 
to PG&E litigation, but other companies that see that and see the result and so forth and are dealing with a similar type of problem, man, a lot of them change the course. And we've seen that happen in many situations. So indeed, you know, the terrible plaintiff's trial lawyers are really out there doing a lot of good. And not just good for the person they represent, but maybe good for all of us. And that's why this job of mine is so much fun. It's just as much fun now as when I tried Keck versus Higgs. <laughs> yeah. my first well, and and uh, and and I dare I ask, how did Ket versus Higgs turn out when your mom was watching you? Okay, so Mrs. Keck was stopped at a stop sign. Mr. Higgs negligently ran into the back of her. Fortunately, there wasn't too much damage to the car. And Mrs. Higgs, her neck was so sore, she had to go to a chiropractor and everything. So I have her on the stand. I said, Ms. Keck, does your neck still hurt a bit? Oh, yes. Do you still have to see a chiropractor now and then? Oh, no. I still do. I said, well, did it hurt like this before? She says, oh, no. Nothing further. My mom was looking on. And Charlie Lindbergh was a defense lawyer. He was another baby lawyer, too. Later had a huge firm, Lindbergh and Nelson. But then, but insurance companies had a little more data on people than we did. said, Ms. Keck, that same thing that got hurt when your sister-in-law ran through the garage door and you went to a different car doctor? Uh, yes. Ms. Keck. That's the same neck that got hurt when your husband ran over the curb. You hit your head on the windshield and you went to a different, uh, yes. <laughs> Isn't it true that neck of yours hurt before this accident? Uh, I suppose so. So it's 11 o'clock. It's time for a break. I go walking out. My mom sees me and says, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. I said, mom, I didn't know. She said, it was your job to know. So that was the lesson for my yeah, first case. Yeah. Well, that's a great story. It is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, uh, let me remind everybody uh, who we've been talking to. We've been talking to Tom Girardi of Girardi Keese in Los Angeles. Uh, you can look up Tom at girardikeese.com. That's G-I-R-A-R-A-R-D-I-K-E-E-S-E.com. And uh, we have been talking about the case of Anderson versus Pacific Gas and Electric um, and is better known as the case that was featured in the movie Aaron Brockovich. Uh, Tom represented uh, 650 plaintiffs and recovered $333 million on that case. Uh, Tom, this has been just a, a fantastic conversation, and we really uh, appreciate your time. Oh, it's so nice to have a little bit of chat time with the two of you. It was really cool. <laughs> And keep up the good work. Well, thank you. And thank, thank you for coming you. on. We, we really appreciate it. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our Great Trials podcast com as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the 
uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.